We're continuing our series in the Gospel of John, titled Meet Your Maker, John chapter 3 today. And the fellows have some Bibles that uh, they can pass out to anybody who needs one. So as they make their way down the aisle, just get their attention. If you need a copy of the scriptures to follow along, we want everybody to have one. John chapter 3, it's page 588, page 588 in the Bibles the fellows are handing out. John chapter 3. And this week, like every week, we ask you to open your Bible and look together at what the Bible says in a particular section. Today, John chapter 3. And if you come around here long enough, you'll get the idea that we're big on the Bible. And that's for good reason. We're convinced that the Bible is the Word of God. It's His message to us. And as such, it has qualities that no ordinary book has. We're going to discuss some of those in the series that is advertised in your program with that insert, Why You Can Trust the Bible, that starts on January the 20th. Because the Bible is God's Word, it serves as a lens through which we see the world. It serves as a mirror in which we see ourselves. It serves as a portrait in which we see God. A lens through which we see the world. A mirror in which we see ourselves. A portrait in which we see God. Because it's God's book, it can penetrate deeply into who we are and what it is that makes us tick. And what it is that makes us ticked, for that matter. The Bible can tell us things about ourselves that no therapist, no one who doesn't know the Bible, can know anything about. And that's why the Bible says about the Bible that the Word of God is living and active and it's sharper than any double-edged sword and it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. Now, Brother Mike is going to be covering this passage in the 11 o'clock hour in some depth. So I encourage you to stay for, for that. But for now, just know that the Bible can diagnose our very thoughts and our attitudes. When we come to the mirror of God's Word, it tells us what we need to hear, not necessarily what we want to hear. Now let's be honest. What we want to hear, what I want to hear, is how great we are. What we want to hear is it's, it's not really our fault. What we want to hear are the things like the therapists will tell us and all too many purported Bible teachers will tell us. That our problem is really not that we love ourselves too much. It's that we don't love ourselves. But listen to what the Bible says. No one ever hated his own body. But he feeds and cares for it. The Bible tells us that people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. The Bible that can penetrate deeply into who we are and what motivates us and how we think says everyone looks out for his own interests. Not those of Jesus Christ. You say, but my therapist told me. 
that I just don't love myself enough. In fact, I heard a preacher say that God commands us to love ourselves. Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, didn't he? That's in a passage in Matthew chapter 22 where Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Many of you will remember it. In verses 37 through 40 of Matthew 22, Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your soul. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus says, on these, how many commands? Two commands. Hang all the law and the prophets. There are only two commands. There are not three. It's not love God, love your neighbor, and love yourself. It's love God, love your neighbor. God already knows you love yourself. And the truth is, that's the heart of our problem. You see, we are all really self-absorbed, every last one of us. And even the world recognizes it. I read an article in the New York Times last year called The Fame Motive. And it began by quoting one of the people on the reality show, Big Brother, who said, To be noticed, to be wanted, to be loved, to walk into a place and have others care about what you're doing, even what you had for lunch that day. That's what people want. The article went on to say, these yearnings can become more acute in life's later years as the opportunities for fame dwindle. But the motive never dies. And when we realize we're not going to make it in this lifetime, we find some other route Some people try to do things that will then live on after them posthumously. Or, I add this note, they go into midlife crisis. You know, I'm just not, I'm right at this tipping edge. I'm not going to be able to do all of these things that I wanted to do and achieve all of this stuff. And so I go into a funk. The article goes on to say, the urge to achieve social distinction is evident worldwide. Even among people for whom prominence is neither accessible nor desirable. In rural Hindu villages in India, for instance, widows are expected to be perpetual mourners, austere in their habits, appetites, and dress. Even so, the article says, get this, they often jockey for position. Said Richard Schwader, an anthropologist in the Department of Comparative Human Development at the University of Chicago. He said, many compete for who is most pure. They say, I don't eat fish, I don't eat eggs, I don't even walk into somebody's house who has even eaten meat. It's a natural kind of social comparison. And the article says Freud might have agreed. He's said to have fainted only twice in his life, both times, when he perceived a threat to his legacy. That great theologian, Carly Simon, recorded a song about us. You're so vain. And you walked into a party like you were walking onto a yacht. You had one eye in the mirror as you watched yourself go vat. Not go by, it's actually go vat, which is like a little dance. You're so vain, you probably think this song is about you. Don't you? Don't you? Unless you think this song is not about you, consider. When you look at a group photo and your mug is in there... Where does your eye go first? I look pretty good there. You see, anthropologists, that is, people who study humans, and non-Christian singers can describe what we do, but they can't make moral judgments about it. But God can, and so the Bible does. 
In seminary, I had a course called Systematic Theology. It takes all of the topics in the Bible and it systematizes them, it categorizes them. And when it comes to the study of people, there's a section called Anthropology, what the Bible says about humanity. And in that class and in virtually every systematic theology textbook I've seen, including the one we'll use in Leadership Institute this year, anthropology, the study of humans, is coupled with another subject, another big word, hamartiology, the study of sin. Why? Why are those wedded together? Because who we are is so tightly woven with what our problem is. Who we are as humans cannot be separated from our problem of sin. And this self-absorption takes so many forms, often very subtle forms. Maybe you've said of yourself, I'm a perfectionist. You need to analyze that a bit. What that means is people can't know that I have flaws. Or I have low self-esteem. I hate myself because, and then you fill in the blank, because of the way I look or because of my lack of intellect or whatever it is. I heard one preacher say several years ago, you know, if you really hated yourself, you'd be glad about all those things. You'd be glad you didn't look that way. You'd be glad you weren't <clears throat> up to snuff intellectually with everybody else. <clears throat> or you fall into depression. Focused on ourselves. Focused inward. Focused on our issues. Many of you have heard me say, expectations minus reality always equals trouble. And it's those expectations, what I expect should happen, and when it doesn't happen. And this addresses itself in religious garb as well. I heard a preacher years ago give a sermon from the book of Job. The last portion of the book of Job where God is speaking to Job out of the whirlwind. Some of you will remember that. And God is chiding Job. And he says to Job, where were you when the earth's foundations were laid? And he says to Job, can you put on strength and beauty? But in the King James, it simply says, put on strength and beauty. It's not a command to do that. It's a chide because you can't. But this preacher preached it as a command, put on strength and beauty. That's something all Christians should do, put on strength and beauty. And here was one of his illustrations. When people come around the block and they see your house, they should go, wow. When people come around the block and see my house, they do say, wow. <laughs> you see how subtle it is, though. We're so, we're so self-absorbed. It even takes on religious clothing. The Bible tells us who we are. It tells us what we need to hear, not necessarily what we want to hear. Wayne and Garth had it right then. And they said, in fact, we're not worthy. And John the Baptist had it right as well, even though some of his earlier followers did not. Some of the earlier, early disciples of John the Baptist were not immune to this kind of self-absorbed thinking. Notice verse 22, then, of John chapter 3. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim. Because there was plenty of water and people were constantly coming to be baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. 
They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he is baptizing and everyone's going to him. Jesus and John the Baptist carried on similar ministries for a period of time until John was arrested. Their message was the same and the results were the same. People came, they were baptized to display repentance for remission of sin. And they were in the same region as well. We're told here in verse 25 that there was a dispute about ceremonial washing that arose between a certain Jew and the followers of John the Baptist. Clearly, John's followers were baptizing in a manner that was offensive to this Jewish man, and so an argument ensued. We know no other details about the argument. But somehow, that argument led to the subject of Jesus' ministry. We're told in verse 26 that the followers of John the Baptist went to him and said, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, he's baptizing, everyone's going to him. Now, can't you almost hear... The dispute is the followers of John the Baptist, the certain Jew, are wrangling over the importance of certain Jewish ceremonies. Maybe that Jewish man stepped back and he said, listen, who is it that you would like me to submit to in baptism? Who is it that you would like for me to follow? You follow John the Baptist, but just down the river there's another man baptizing. You have a split message with divided loyalties. And so they ran like children to John. They said, John, you're the baptizer. This guy, Jesus, is baptizing and people are following him. What are you going to do about it? Prime opportunity for self-absorption, isn't it? For pride to manifest itself. Pride's the very heart of every sin. It's always seeking to insinuate itself. To creep in deceptively within the ranks of those even who serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Pride comes in the form of self-promotion. It says, people need to appreciate me more. It says, I was here first. It says, I need to be used in a public way so that people can see my talents. It says, this is my turf, you stay off it. It says, I need to use my gifts the way I see fit. Self-promotion is an evil that's incompatible with the very notion of Christian service. The tragedy is that self-promotion promises great joy, but it always ends up robbing its accomplice of that great treasure of joy. It's incompatible with service and therefore incompatible with the joy that God has for us. Beginning in verse number 27 then of John 3, I want us to see two things from this passage. The first is that joy in serving God does not come from self-promotion, But second, it comes by participating in the spread of the fame of Jesus Christ. First, in verses 27 to 30, those who serve Christ do not practice self-promotion. Look at verses 27 and 28 with me. To this, John replied, A man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ but am sent ahead of him. John's saying here, friends, that we each fulfill a secondary role that's given by God. A man can only receive the work in God's field, God's vineyard, that God assigns him. From the very beginning, John the Baptist understood that he was destined to play a secondary role. 
He said he was not the Christ, but he was the forerunner of the Christ. The one who was given the privilege of announcing Christ's coming. <clears throat> Within the church, isn't it true that God assigns roles? He's given to each of us certain abilities that he's designed within us to be used for His glory and within the context of His church. Some of those abilities are described in passages like 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans chapter 12, where the church is compared to a body and it has hands and feet and eyes, all serving different but very necessary functions. According to the Bible, it's God who assigns those functions. And here John the Baptist says, it's God who assigns the functions. He made you what you are. He designed you to fulfill His purposes. That's why John then says, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. There's some powerful implications to that statement if you think about it. It teaches that you really cannot, contrary to popular notions, you really cannot be whatever you want to be. We're so afraid of warping our children that we've bought into nonsense like everyone's a winner. Or you can be whatever you want to be. Hear this, friends. We ought to teach our children, you can be what God wants you to be, and that's best. And God has prepared you to live a life for Him. Finding His will and pursuing it is, by definition, success. In fact, I just have a three-word definition of success. Faithfulness is success. Verse 29, John goes on to describe that we not only fulfill a secondary role that's assigned by God, but it's a secondary role that brings great joy. In verse 29, he uses an illustration of, a, of the principle that he's teaching his followers. Notice verse 29. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That, is, that joy is mine. And it's now complete. They took exception to the fact that those who at first had followed John the Baptist were now following Christ. And John the Baptist says that's natural. Just as it's natural for the bride to belong to the groom. The best man steps back and he takes great joy over seeing the bride given to the groom. So I have served as the best man and now my joy is complete. He's referring to the friend of the bridegroom or the best man at a Jewish wedding who had a very unique position. The best man would act as the liaison between the bride and the groom because there was to be no contact between them for an entire week until the consummation of the wedding. He arranged the wedding plans. He made sure the invitations were taken care of. He presided at the wedding feast. And then he brought the bride and the groom together. According to some historians, the friend of the bridegroom had a very important special duty. He was to guard the bridal chamber and let no false lover in. He stood guard until he heard the groom coming, recognized his voice and allowed him admittance. And then he departed rejoicing. John the Baptist says, I'm the friend of the groom. The bride does not belong to me, but my joy comes from the union being consummated. And so I've heard his voice and I rejoice. And that's why he says that joy is mine and it's now complete. And I withdraw from the picture. Friends, joy does not come from usurping the relationship that belongs to the groom. 
Joy does not come from others hearing us or seeing us. Joy comes when they hear the Master and follow Him and are united with Him. And like John, we need to say, I've fulfilled my responsibility when He is glorified and I draw my joy from His glory. We each fulfill a secondary role. It's a role that's assigned by God. It's a role that brings great joy. And then in verse 30, John summarizes it by saying it's a secondary role that promotes the fame of Christ. Notice verse 30. He must become greater. I must become less. He's actually addressing the question that's implied back in verse 26 when his followers came and said, that man who was with you is baptizing. Everybody's going to him. And the implied question is, what are you going to do about that? And John says, this is the way it ought to be. His following must increase and mine must decrease because he has the supremacy. And so it is with every one of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. As we serve, we have to remember we're not building our own little empires. We're working to accomplish his will that will promote his coming kingdom. We live not to promote our own reputations, but the reputation of Christ, his fame. And John the Baptist understood that very important truth. If they follow me, they're not following Christ and I have failed. He must become greater. I must become less. Then in verse 31, a transition takes place. John the Baptist's words end in verse 30. And then the Apostle John, the writer of this book, picks up and gives a further six-verse explanation. He shows why this has to be the case. That those who serve Christ do not practice self-promotion. That they're in a secondary role which brings joy as it promotes the fame of Jesus Christ. He focuses our attention in these six verses on the supremacy of Christ. That those who serve Christ proclaim His supremacy in a number of ways. In verse 31, we proclaim his supremacy in his origin. Notice what it says in verse 31. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He reminds us here of the origin of Christ. And why it is that we must support the knowledge of his supremacy and broadcast his fame rather than our own. He's the one who came from heaven. He came from heaven. He lived upon this earth and now he's returned to heaven. Here we find echoes of the introduction to this gospel in John chapter 1. If you were with us a few months ago as we looked at the opening verses of John chapter 1. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This makes him unique among all religious leaders in all the world. He came from heaven. He's returned to heaven. He's unlike Muhammad. He's unlike Confucius and every other leader who came from the earth, born of men, living and dying, and now dust in the grave. Jesus Christ's supremacy is seen in his origin. And so we promote his fame because he is above all. We promote his supremacy in his origin, but secondly, in his message in verses 32 to 34. Notice what it says. Jesus testifies to what he has seen and heard. It's a firsthand account. 
but no one accepts his testimony. The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The message of Christ is unlike the message of anyone else. And again, here we have echoes of the introduction to this book found in chapter 1 and verse 18. Where John wrote, no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, the unique son who is at the father's side has made him known. He came to reveal, to make God known. That's why we have these dominant themes throughout the book of John that he came to testify and he came to give us truth. Even in his very acts that we call signs or miracles, we see testimony about the truth of God. So it's a unique message. But don't you find it interesting that though he testifies about what he has a first-hand account of, no one accepts his testimony. The Bible tells us he came to that which was own in chapter 1, but his own did not receive him. No one received his testimony. It's an authoritative message. It comes from the one who has been at the right hand of God from eternity past, and yet, according to verse 32, it's rejected by most people. Left to their own desires, no one will receive the truth presented by God's Son. God must intervene. God must allow one to understand for the first time the truth of what's proclaimed by His Son, Jesus Christ. And so happily in verse 33, we find that some do embrace the truth. It says, the man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. God in His grace enables us to understand and to receive the truth of the message that Jesus came to give. And notice it says that this occasional one accepts His message, whom God saves is one who certifies that God is truthful. That word certifies describes the act of applying a seal. In ancient times, they would affix a seal to an important document. And it served a number of functions. One, it preserved the document from being tampered with. It showed ownership. In this context, it served another purpose. If someone had a legal document prepared and they read it over and determined that it was true and accurate, they would fix their seal to it as a witness to the accuracy of the content of that document. In that sense, we find here that those who've responded to the gospel affix their seal to the accuracy of this statement. God is true. The God, the God who has been revealed by Jesus Christ and has been made known by the gospel is true. And the one who receives that message is affixing his seal, certifying of its truthfulness. His message is rejected by many. It's embraced by some. But notice in verse 34, it is the very word of God. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the spirit without limit. In the Old Testament, when a prophet was raised up by God, he would proclaim God's message. The scriptures describe giving his spirit to that prophet. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, we find God raising up men to do his bidding. And he would pour out his spirit upon them. But it's interesting that when men like Elisha were about to take over, the, when he was about to take over the role vacated by Elijah, 
Elisha requested a double portion of the Spirit, you may remember. Consequently, the rabbis taught that every prophet was given a measure of the Spirit, a certain ability measured out by God. And yet here we're told that Jesus Christ was given the Spirit, notice how, without measure, no limitations. It was a way of underscoring John's thought here that the words of Christ were undeniably the very words of God. Now the words of the prophets were the word of God as well, but the words of Christ were not just words spoken by a prophet, but words which came from a prophet who is God himself. I've told you often, the prophets spoke about God. But Jesus is the God about whom they spoke. And so we proclaim Christ's supremacy in his origin and in his message. In verse 35, also in his sovereignty, notice verse 35, the father loves the son and he's placed everything in his hands. John, writing years after the life of Christ, remembers the day after the resurrection of Christ when Jesus came to his followers and he said, All authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. This one whom we worship, Jesus Christ, has exercised the will of the Father throughout all eternity and all authority is given to him to exercise. Jesus Christ created this universe. He upholds this universe. He told his followers elsewhere that God has given him authority to judge his creation. The Apostle Paul told a group of pagan philosophers in Athens, Greece, this. In him we live. In him we move. In him we have our very being. All things are in his hands. It's a statement of the sovereignty of this one Jesus whom we worship. So, friends, joy in serving God does not come from promoting ourselves, but from promoting Him and the fame of His supremacy. He's sovereign. He's given us a message that is true. He's the one who originated in heaven. This one who came from heaven revealing truth and exercising supremacy over all creation is supreme also in that He has provided the salvation that every person needs. We see that in verse 36. We proclaim Christ's supremacy in his salvation. Notice verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. The great one from heaven who reveals the truth of God and exercises supremacy over all creation has provided a way of salvation for you and for me. Isn't it marvelous that the requirement for receiving salvation is simply this. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. When we speak of belief, we're speaking of a simple act. One that anyone can exercise. But it's more than intellectual acknowledgement of the facts of the message of the gospel. It's an acceptance, a trust that results in a life of obedience. Note the contrast in verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life. Now notice this word, reject. It's the common Greek term for disobey. He's contrasting belief with disobedience. We trust Christ, we believe in Christ, and that issues forth in obedience to Christ. 
So much so that the contrast to belief in John's mind is disobedience. The evidence that one has never trusted is the fact that he's willing to live in an ongoing state of disobedience. And so the scriptures state, the end of verse 36, God's wrath remains then on that person. Friends, we proclaim Christ who is eternal God, who came to reveal the truth of God to man. We proclaim Christ who is over all things as sovereign Lord. We proclaim Christ who has given us a way of salvation. And you and I are privileged to make him known. And that's why you hear me pray very often. Lord, thank you for allowing us to participate in what you're doing in your world. He allows me to be a part of that. He allows you to be a part of that. You know what our job is? Our job is to point away from ourselves and to him. Get out of the way. Give the message clearly. Let him receive all of the glory and see him do his work in the lives of people. May that be true of us individually. That contrary to what our culture tells us about promoting ourselves, looking out for number one, that we always say we play a secondary role and we're thrilled to do so. We're proud to be number two or number three or number ten because Jesus Christ is number one. And I invite you then to receive him as your Savior as we're going to pray in just a moment. He's the God who made you. He's the Savior who has given his life to redeem you. How can you receive them then as your Savior and thus no longer have the wrath of God abiding on you? Well, you realize that you have sinned and thus require a payment for that sin that you cannot make. Recognize that Jesus died on the cross for your sin. And then you repent of your sin. And what that means is you determine, you say, Lord, I desire, I want to go your way, not my way. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. And you do that by believing. You express that belief by asking. You can pray a prayer like this from your heart to God right now as we bow. Receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you for this time that we could look into the lens of Scripture and we can see your world as you see it. We could look into the mirror of Scripture and we could see ourselves as you see us. We could look into the portrait of Scripture and we can see you as you truly are. Thank you, Lord God, for giving us this lens, this mirror, this portrait. We thank you for the Bible, the Word of God. We thank you that indeed it penetrates deeply that it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of our hearts. Help us then to be, as people of the book, people who discern every proposition, everything with which we are confronted by comparing it and contrasting it with what you have said in your word. Lord, there are so many false notions about you and about ourselves in our culture. Help us to be discerning people. Help us to see ourselves clearly, to see you clearly, and thus to see the marvelous salvation you have provided in all of its majesty. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for who he is. He is God come as man. He deserves the supremacy in all things. Help us, therefore, to be a humble people. People not seeking self-promotion. 
People who serve you joyfully because it's a joy to serve the King and who don't care how we serve as long as we're given the opportunity to serve. We don't care who gets the credit as long as your glory is accomplished. Help us to be that kind of people. And thus a unified people. And a people who show something that is unnatural to an unlooking world. And I pray, Lord, today that your Spirit has moved upon the hearts of some in this group to draw them out of the world into yourself. So that they're embracing the Savior right now. So that they're obeying the message of the gospel and embarking on a life of obedience and increased obedience as they learn of you going forward. Lord, we love you for these things and all that you have done for us. We love you for who you are as well as what you've done. And we commit ourselves to you and our ministry to you for your fame and your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.